This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The history of Iowa hasn't changed, but our understanding of it continues to deepen and evolve. Back in 1996, the late historian Dorothy Schweeter of Iowa State University published a book called Iowa, the Middle Land. It was a new comprehensive history of our state that included the stories of many Iowans who had been overlooked and undervalued in the past. Now, Jeff Bremer, also a historian at Iowa State University, has followed in her footsteps with his book, A New History of Iowa. It's a comprehensive history that incorporates the foundational stories that are well known, but paints a much richer more diverse, and more complicated picture than we've seen in the past. Jeff Bremer will be at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines tomorrow evening at 6.30, and he is on the line with me now. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Now, you spent nearly a decade researching and writing this book. What made you feel like now was the time for a new comprehensive history book of Iowa? Well, as you mentioned, the uh, Dorothy Schreeder's book was published um, 27 years ago. It was the standard for, well, ever since, and it is the most comprehensive history of the state. I taught Iowa history here at Iowa State for um, almost 10 years. And in putting together a class like that, you want to make sure you hit on the main themes of American history, whether it's the Civil War, uh, farm crisis, uh, Great Depression. And in putting my class together, I I realized there were some holes and some gaps that could be filled in. Um, And every generation roughly writes their own history. And so in this book, I have dug deeper into the archives, added new stories, found new sources. Uh, I have followed up on some themes that have become more important the past few decades, immigration, race, and the environment. And while I I cannot replace Schweder, who is our greatest historian of Iowa. I can build upon what she said, and I can expand uh, in areas that were of my interest, social history, and um, Iowa, especially in the past uh, few decades. You are not originally from Iowa, right? No, I, I am not. I am from California, which usually uh, it's the other way around. People go from the Midwest yep. to California. Uh, and hundreds of thousands of Midwesterners ended up uh, in uh, California, including my, my father and, and uh, his parents who came from Nebraska. Uh, and I had the good luck to come back here to Iowa, get a job at Iowa State. Um, I came here with my second book project was going to be a book on Iowa. So I was fortunate I came here to work with their history education program at the same time as I was thinking about a book in Iowa. What 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 made you want to write a book about Iowa before you even came here? Um, well, I had done a book on Missouri before the Civil War, uh, a long titled book on, on basically consumerism and capitalism uh, in Missouri. And my undergrad, my graduate advisor had said, well, you know, for a dissertation, why don't you think about Iowa? So I put that on the back burner as a possible second book once I finished a book uh, on Missouri. And, you know, I, a job came open in 2011 and the, the 
thing that I wanted to do next happened to be in the location of my possible next job. Do you feel like being somebody who didn't grow up in the state of Iowa, did that give you fresh eyes in looking at our history in some ways? It, it may have helped. It, it definitely made me think about how Iowa fit into the grand national narrative. Uh, it made me think about how can I explain Iowa's importance? Places like California are hugely important for American history, as are Texas or New York. Uh, and coming from someplace different made me look at it with fresh eyes. And, and well, I, I'm not from Iowa. I don't have any kind of Iowa patriotism until I arrived here. Um, and, you know, I, how do I explain its importance? And that's useful to be an outsider. Well, let's dig into the importance of this state of ours. I mean, there are so many subjects in this book that we could spend a full hour exploring. There are several that I have jotted down for future shows where we will spend a whole hour exploring. Um, but today we're going to touch on on just a few of the subjects that you write about in the book. And I think it's so important when looking at a comprehensive history of the state of Iowa to acknowledge that this land was home to people with culture and history for thousands of years before our recorded history begins. And, and you do begin with that acknowledgement. That feels like a really important piece to recognize. Uh, yeah, you're, you're completely right. It is before the United States, before American and European immigration came to the Midwest, for millennia, there were people that lived here and thrived and built civilizations and cultures. And uh, the United States uh, has incorporated their old homelands and the places that they loved. And, uh, and those people that lived here before, the Sauk and the Meskwaki and the Iowa and the other tribes that had lived or hunted in Iowa, their history is Iowa history. And their history is American history. And uh, they crop up, um, you know, across the book as a reminder that the first peoples, the indigenous peoples of the Midwest or Iowa are still here. They've always been here and they always will be here. You write a little bit about native Iowa, indigenous Iowa and, and the land and those first contacts with Europeans and then you write a little bit about the Black Hawk War in 1832, which was such a pivotal moment in the history of Native people in this country, but, but specifically in the Midwest. Why was that such an important moment? Well, the Black Hawk War is the, the, the prelude to the, America, the opening up of Iowa for uh, American settlement. Um, it is a conflict that led to uh, the Native people eventually losing all their claims um, to to Iowa. It is the conflict which led to the removal of the Meskwaki and the Sauk and the loss of, of uh, their rights and their control of the land. Uh, June 1st, 1833, about a year after the war concluded, um, Iowa formally opened up to American and European settlement, and people flooded in to begin to claim land in uh, eastern Iowa. 
It's so interesting to me in reflecting on that moment in history. And uh, of course, calling it a war may be a bit of a a misnomer because uh, it was very much one-sided. So many indigenous people Mm -hmm. lost their lives. Um, But then in Iowa, we named so many landmarks. We still name businesses after Black Hawk. It's just an interesting mark in our culture that uh, although so many people don't understand that history, the name is recognized and, and lives on in so many ways. But that's probably a conversation for another day after the Black Hawk War. And as you mentioned, in 1833, when the land was opened to European settlement, Iowa really became the Western frontier at that point. And, and it was really kind of the Wild West, wasn't it? Uh, in, in many ways, it was. Um, they're really, for the first couple years of the existence of, of Iowa Territory, and it actually was part of Michigan Territory and then part of Wisconsin Territory, officially became Iowa Territory in 1838. But the first couple years uh, uh, after it was formally opened up, there really was no government that existed in Iowa or, or courts or laws on the west side of the Mississippi. And this is a time when people are flooding in to pursue land claims. They're coming for to make mining claims. And there is, uh, uh, there is a great deal of, uh, of uh, violence um, in the mining areas. Uh, there is people that, by the thousands, that are flooding into eastern Iowa looking to claim land. Um, it is definitely not boring. Yeah, you write about, uh, this is a story of Iowa history that I had never heard. You write about Louisa Massey. Can you tell me a little about, a bit about this really bold young woman? Well, she is a member of a family that makes a mining claim um, around Dubuque. And um, there is a dispute with one of their neighbors. It's a dispute between uh, the, the Massey and the Smith family. And one of her brothers is killed um, by the Smith family, John Smith and William Smith. And there is an attempt to hold them to account, but the the um, courts on the east side of the Mississippi say, we don't have any jurisdiction over there. So nothing happens. Uh, and and uh, at one point, one of the murderers um, of, the, of, of Woodbury is walking down the street in, in Galena, it walks past uh, a business owned by one of Luis's family. And he runs out and he shoots that guy dead. And then so one of his relatives uh, vows vengeance against uh, the Massey family. And Luisa um, goes and she finds out where uh, one of these, one of these uh, rivals are at. She goes to him. She has uh, dressed up in a disguise. She's armed. She says, if you were John Smith, defend yourself. He stands up and she shoots him, hoping to bring an end to the dispute. Uh, he, he lives because he has a wallet in his pocket, which absorbs the blow. Uh, but this kind of brings an end to the rivalry where the two families are busy shooting and killing one another. And it looks like uh, Louisa County is named for her. That, so she became, she must have become sort of a, a folk hero for her vigilante justice, if, if we uh, named a county for her. Yep, yep. 
Fascinating. I mean, I think that really does paint a picture of uh, of what life was like in Iowa in those early years of settlement. And of course, that was eastern Iowa. That was the western frontier at the beginning of, of the settlement of the state. We'll talk more about what happened as people moved across the state in a moment. We're going to take a short break. I am talking with Jeff Bremer. He is an associate professor of history at Iowa State University. He is the author of the new book, A New History of Iowa. It's a comprehensive history of the state of Iowa, and it certainly includes stories you have never heard before. He will be at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines tomorrow evening at 6.30. That's Friday evening at 6.30. And we will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are exploring the history of Iowa with the book, A New History of Iowa, written by Jeff Bremer. It is a comprehensive history of the state of Iowa, and it includes many stories uh, about Iowans who've been overlooked or undervalued in the past. And Jeff Bremer will be at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines tomorrow evening at 6.30. And just before the break, Jeff, we were talking a, a little bit about when Iowa was the Wild West, those early years of settlement in the 1830s, the 1840s. And the pioneers who settled this land that indigenous people had just been removed from, the pioneers who came were more diverse than previously acknowledged. Give me a little bit of an idea of who was drawn to this land. Well, Ed, as you might imagine, um, famously, you have uh, Swedish and Dutch immigrants here in Iowa and Germans and Irish. And th th those are some of the, the uh, major nationalities that come uh, before the Civil War. But before the Civil War, you have African-Americans who are fleeing from slavery, enslavement in the South, from Kentucky or Missouri. Uh, you also have, in the late 19th century, you have Chinese uh, immigrants end up here in Iowa as well. You have Italians that come to, in the mid and late 19th century, to work in coal camps and work on railroads. Um, it, is, it is a much more diverse crowd of people in the 19th century than you might expect. You have uh, Jews that come to, to Iowa and settle uh, in some of the river towns. And large numbers of them come in the late 19th century, fleeing violence and pogroms um, that exist in Eastern Europe and in Russia. Um, it, it's, it's much more diverse than you might expect. 
the major draw, of course, for people was the idea that they could own land in this state. And and I'm sure that legend of the fertile soils of Iowa spread far and wide. Um, the people who did come and try to farm this land, I mean, that was extraordinarily difficult work to break the sod and to to really eke out a living in this new frontier. You write a lot about a really an underrecognized part of that, which is that it, it was not just farmers doing this work. I mean, the, the whole family would need to labor to make that work. Yes, you would. There were a uh, family farm works because the entire family worked whether it was children, whether it was women, whether it was men. Farming is extraordinarily labor-intensive, especially back in the 19th century when most everything was done by, by hand and a family was mostly um, self-sufficient. If you're thinking about a basic division of labor, it would be done by gender. Men might do more outdoor work, more construction, planting, harvesting, um, planting corn, harvesting, cutting wood, hunting, etc. White women usually did more indoor work or work uh, in the garden. Uh, they, of course, took care of many children. They took care of the, the, the home uh, production. They took care of a garden, sewed, produced candles and butter and soap, um, their work was more year-round and, and, and non-stop. Yeah, and non-stop. Yeah. In fact, uh, to paraphrase one woman in chapter three, she says, "Our lives consisted of work, work, and more work." If you're thinking about what uh, children might do to help, children were their labor was um, pretty pretty versatile and and quite adaptable. They could work inside. They could work outside in the garden. They could take care of livestock and animals. Uh, they could um, collect eggs. They could collect berries and wood. Usually boys would do the work of men and girls would do the work of women. And as they got older, that gender division became much clearer. Um, but boys as young as six would watch cows. Um, I had the story of one young boy who's 10 years old, who was left a home to watch his farm and a prairie fire crops up and is endangering his home. And he goes out by himself and he fights back off the prairie and he preserves fields and he helps to keep save his home. Um, and it's just extraordinary stories that of people, no matter your age. That, that's so uh, amazing to think, yeah. to think about. You're talking about Benjamin Garrett, who you, you wrote about, and think about yep. a child, our concept of a child, the age of 10, you know, protecting his home from a wildfire. Childhood clearly meant something very different to the people yes. of yes. the prairie back then. Very much so. Um, Iowa was always a free state. Um, you mentioned already that it, it did attract free black Americans or freedom seekers because it was founded as a free state. But the whole country and Iowa, I mean, that slavery shaped 
the state, even though this was a free state. And uh, tell me just a little bit about how powerful that force was as as Iowa was becoming the state that it is. Um, Iowa, as you know, was, was formerly a free state. But even in the 1830s, uh, some of the state officials brought enslaved people to Iowa with them. And the uh, 1840 census actually showed that there were uh, a few dozen uh, uh, people who were counted as in, enslaved. Um, the state is home to, of course, throughout the vast majority of its history, uh, a free African-American population, often those who have escaped from Missouri or those who escaped from Kentucky or those that fled enslavement and uh, many African-Americans, uh, men, served in the all-black um, 60th Colored Regiment during the Civil War. And they went and they fought in the South. Uh, before the Civil War, um, there was, you can make an, an, an argument as Robert Dykstra did in his book, Bright Radical Star, about uh, black um, freedom and white supremacy, you can make basic a division between how Iowans treated African-Americans in general. Before the Civil War, there was a great deal of regulation of their lives. You could not vote. You could not take part in the militia. For some of that time, you're unable to testify in court. There is, in 1851, a law that most of the listeners may not know about, called the 1851 Exclusionary Law, which prohibited the settlement of blacks in Iowa. There's some dispute about if it ever came into force as a law because of how it was published, but that law was on the books. It was, was hardly ever enforced, maybe once and then abandoned. But um, the Exclusionary Law it shows the nadir of how white Iowans looked at people who were African-American. Things changed after the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, things changed for how the North looked at the South, uh, or excuse me, looked at African-Americans uh, in general, in part because of the courageous service of black men in the Northern military. I want to talk a little bit about pre-Civil War years, though. You went back to so many primary sources for this book, and you tell so many personal stories, which really are so fascinating and enlightening. And one of the ones that you write about is from 1853, when Charlotta and Harry Piles, along with their 16 children and grandchildren, escaped from enslavement in Kentucky. And they came to Iowa. And Charlotta in particular is a really fascinating person. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the life she led and the work she did? Well, the the Piles um, are enslaved in Kentucky. They are, they are freed when their enslaver dies. But then his family begins to sell off um, uh, Charlotta's family members. And so they, they lose a son permanently to, to enslavement in Missouri. So they decide to leave. They, with the help of uh, a couple other um, whites, including a minister, they, they make it to the Mississippi River, watched at all times, and they eventually make it to um, up to Keokuk. 
there, uh, Harry begins to build a, a home. And Charlotta um, then decides that she needs to earn money to gain the freedom of two of her sons-in-law that could not escape Kentucky with them. And so she heads to the Northeast, and she gives abolitionist speeches in Philadelphia, New York, and and Boston, and other places. She meets with um, anti-slavery leaders like Frederick Douglass. And she is totally uneducated. She's never had the privilege of learning how to read or write. But she is able to tell a story that is, is so moving and so raw that and so meaningful that she's able to raise $3,000 to come back to Iowa. She's able to buy her two sons out of enslavement. And then 1850s, 1860s on, until her death, she is um, a leader of the Underground Railroad in uh, southeast Iowa. They help people escape. They help people um, find lost members of their family and do very quietly uh, things that John Brown and and, uh, others had done and got a a lot more attention for. I'm talking with Jeff Bremer. He's the author of A New History of Iowa. And, you know, we've talked on this program, not you and I, but I've talked with other historians a great deal about what we've learned about abolitionists in Iowa and the Underground Railroad in the state. And, And there are so many really incredible stories to be told But, you know, even in the places that are founded by abolitionists, equality was a real struggle. We've already talked about some of the the anti-black laws that were on the books in Iowa. But even in a place like Grinnell, um, the townspeople went to great lengths to exclude black students from their schools. Do you feel like ever, Jeff, that, you know, there are these moments that we celebrate the stories that we celebrate, where we talk about the Underground Railroad, we talk about the fact that Iowa was the first state to um, make segregation of schools against the law. Alexander Clark's work is is responsible for that, or, or even the rest- return of the Meskwaki when they purchased some of their land back in 1857. Do you feel like sometimes these moments of justice, or at least semi-justice in our history, do you feel like we let that obscure a clear vision of the whole picture? Well, history is complex and, and messy. It's not always what we want to know. I, I lectured in class today on Andrew Jackson and Indian removal, and it, w- it was a, a, a class where students were, uh, it, w- it was sobering material. But in, in Iowa, we have, the state has a pretty solid civil rights record. It was, it was a conduit for the Underground Railroad, John Brown recruited many of those who fought with him at Harper's Ferry, but it still was a place that until the Civil War and after, and even afterwards, was not always welcoming to African Americans, such as the exclusionary law. Um, so yeah, you, you, you are right. We often um, like to tell us what we want to hear. And it's the hard stuff is what we need to talk about. The things we don't want to shine a light on is, is what we need to think about. Because if you know where your state or your country or your population has gone wrong in the past, you can use that as a guide 
in the hopes that even 150, 180 years later, that you can avoid some of the mistakes uh, of, of intolerance, the mistakes of not judging everyone as equal of the rights that others have. I want to talk about the Civil War. And and again, Civil War history is something that Iowans are very proud of. So many Iowans served in the Civil War. Um, 76,000 Iowan men served in the Civil War. 13,001 died in the Civil War. This was a really pivotal moment for the state in so many ways, how did the Civil War and, and our involvement in the efforts of the Union, how did that change the state of Iowa? Well, first of all, what the Civil War did is by destroying slavery, is, is, uh, is it helped put the country on its slow path towards equality. So that is the first thing to keep in mind. Second of all, the uh, Civil War and the courageous involvement of about a thousand black volunteers who fought for the Union and in an Iowa Union helped to demonstrate to Iowans that black Iowans uh, were as equally deserved the rights that everyone else had. had. And so in in those two basic ways, the the Civil War was extraordinarily important for Iowa. Um, But what the war does is, is it demonstrates Iowans Patriotism, as you said, 76,000 served, 13,000 died. Uh, Unfortunately, there is a myth that more Iowans as a percentage volunteered to fight in the war. That is not true. Large numbers volunteered. The unfortunate point there is a larger percentage of Iowans than any other northern state died while fighting in the war. Um, but, But the Civil War, the end of it. Uh, also brings about uh, significant African-American immigration to uh, Iowa. Uh, The end of the Civil War um, and during the Civil War, hundreds of thousands of people came to Iowa. And uh, the the war is a turning point for the United States because the country is no longer divided. It is no longer the United States are. It is the United States is. And I have played uh, an important role there, as you mentioned, with Alexander Clark. You have others like Annie um, Turner Wittenmeyer. And um, it, there's, there's tons of stories. I, I, could, I could continue on. Well, and uh, Alexander Clark, as you mentioned, I mean, he was a, a leading black businessman. He worked very hard for social justice in the state during the sto- the war and later on. He helped to recruit uh, many of those black soldiers who, who volunteered to fight in the war and made an incredible mark on this state. Um, I do. I want to hear more of these personal stories because they are so fascinating, but we also need to take a short break. And we'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Jeff Bremer. He's an associate professor of history at Iowa State University, and he has published A New History of Iowa. It's a comprehensive history of the state of Iowa that brings to light many stories that you probably haven't heard before. He will be at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines tomorrow evening at 6.30, and we will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today, my guest is Jeff Bremer. He is the author of A New History of Iowa. It is a comprehensive history of the state of Iowa that brings to the forefront stories that really haven't been told before in Iowa histories, stories of Iowans who've been overlooked and undervalued, and of course, those foundational stories, the ones you may remember from fifth grade Iowa history class, those are there as well. Jeff Bremer is an associate professor of history at Iowa State University. He'll be at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines at 6.30 tomorrow evening. And Jeff, we started talking about the Civil War um, just before the break, and there are so many stories of of the Civil War and of people doing really incredible things during the Civil War. You share a lot of stories uh, from the home front during the Civil War, and, and these are, I guess, when we tell stories of war, we often tell stories about the men who went and fought, but of course, there were so many people left behind, so many women holding together family farms and businesses, taking care of their children, keeping their communities functioning. You write about uh, Marjorie Ann Rogers, who was one of those extraordinary women who who just kept things going after her husband went off to war. Yeah, Marjorie Ann Rogers is one of those unheralded but absolutely fascinating figures that make sure that Iowa runs while 76,000 men are gone. Uh, Her husband is a doctor, and he volunteers to be a surgeon in the Union Army. And while he's gone, she has to take care of of four kids and a farm. So she rents her farm out and takes her family, and they go to Toledo. And um, she has a, a deal with the person who is renting her farm, where she will go take surplus farm produce to sale uh, in town. And she runs into just, just a tad bit of sexism when she's looking to borrow a wagon or rent a wagon from a man who doesn't think she'll be able to you know, correctly drive it. And she goes and collects the surplus and she um, comes back to town to sell it. And um, the, the, these men around her are definitely don't think she can do all the work uh, uh, of a man. And she refuses her help. And she says, if I'm going to do the same work as a man, then I will do the same thing as a man. She doesn't ask for help with the wagon, doesn't ask for help with unloading, doesn't ask for help getting out of the wagon. And she uh, you know, takes care of her kids and sells surplus produce and manages things while her husband is gone. And near the end of the war, she gets this terrifying note from the Union Army that says her husband was killed in a Confederate raid. And then nine days later, she gets a letter from him saying, oh, I was involved in this, uh, this, this short battle, but I'm still OK. So, so uh, oops, uh, we you, didn't you, mean to tell you yeah, that your oops. husband was dead. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so it a little more drama than I'm sure she wanted. Oh my goodness! Well, uh, there are so many more stories that that we could talk about there, but I, I do want to point out that there were two things happening simultaneously in this country. There was the Civil War, which of course shaped the country in so many ways. But there was also this wave of migration going on because of the Homestead Act of 1862. So at the same time that all these men are going away to war, there are also immigrants moving across the country to to start their own farms, to start their new lives out west. Yes, the Homestead Act is more important for the West and for the Great Plains than Iowa but in uh, Western Iowa and Northwest Iowa, plenty of people do make homestead claims. The law passed in 1862, and basically it said if you uh, make a claim for this land and you, you make improvements and you live on it for five years, then you can file to get the land without, with nothing more than like a $5 filing charge. So in the drier, uh, more windier parts of Northwest Iowa, there are thousands of people who make successfully make homestead claims. Those are people of, of both genders. And uh, there are a couple examples of them in the book, including uh, in 1862, uh, a man who comes out to Iowa. He's glad that he's away from his family and his, his authoritarian father. And uh, he successfully um, cl- um, homesteads, claims his land. There are plenty of other families that came out uh, uh, as well. I think maybe 8,000 successfully uh, made homestead claims in Iowa. But yeah, it, it's, uh, it's often people living in sod homes, uh, very uh, primitive circumstances, uh, eking out uh, a, a survival in a place with um, no trees where you have uh, blizzards, and extraordinarily cold weather, uh, but they persevere. And uh, it, it's plenty of fantastic stories. Now, we don't, I, I already said this at the beginning of the hour, we don't have time to talk about all of Iowa history, and we're going to skip ahead a little bit. But before we talk about the Great Depression, which is something that I want to make sure we have some time for, I, I do want to mention that as as Iowa developed, there were some really important forces that shaped the state and shaped our culture, both the religious diversity in the state. We've talked about how the, the settlers were far more diverse than, than we may think. There were many different religions represented in Iowa. You already talked about Jewish religion as, as you know time came on. Muslims came to Iowa. We have the Mother Mosque in Cedar Rapids. But the other thing that was going on in the state of Iowa was a deep investment in public education. And you write that really it um, it was our religious diversity and our first-rate school system that really helped to mold the state's distinctive culture. Tell me more about what that means. Well, um, Iowa today, uh, even though it's not racially diverse at all, is one of the most religiously diverse states in the country. And Iowa um, is, is traditionally known as having an excellent public education system. And this really started um, with an 1858 law, which kicked off um, Iowa's, think of it, Iowa's one-room school system and Iowa's public education system. 
where property taxes were used to help pay for schools across the state. So that's where you end up with, with small, the, the uh, romantic one-room schoolhouses where they might have 20 or 30 kids, and you have schoolhouses dotted across the state every couple miles. And even though Iowa didn't spend a ton of money on education, there was a great deal of, of investment in it at the local level, uh, a great deal of, um, of, of in, in involvement in it by local communities who had a great deal of say at the township level. And um, Iowa, by 1900, uh, had one of the most illiterate populations in the country, tied with Nebraska, I believe, at 97% literacy. Wow. And Iowa... Um, public school system, even if it was small and rural and not terribly developed, uh, was incredibly successful at training people for life and giving them the basic skills that you needed, whether you were, um, you just needed literacy or if you went on to uh, high school or higher education. Well, and, and Jeff, had you grown up in Iowa, you talked about not having Iowa patriotism and learning about Iowa history. Had you grown up in Iowa, that was the, that was the bit of patriotism that was pounded into our brains, our pride in our public schools as I was growing up in Iowa in the 1970s and 80s. So I do want to skip ahead. Um, and I encourage people who read your book not to skip any chapters, but we are going to skip ahead to the Great Depression. Um, I, I didn't understand until reading your book how really hard Iowa was hit by the Great Depression. In fact, a case could be made that Iowa was harder hit than many other places in the country. What made the, the Great Depression so brutal here in Iowa? Well, uh, to to make the point about how badly hurt Iowa was, the, the New Deal poured more money per capita into Iowa than any other Midwestern state except for North Dakota and South Dakota. So first thing to keep in mind is, is there was more need here. Um, the Great Depression, technically seen, is usually beginning in, in 1929 and ending with World War II. But Iowa had suffered throughout the 1920s. Its banking system had collapsed. Farm prices were very low. An average of 87 Iowa banks failed between 1921 in 1931. And that's almost a thousand banks. This is about half the banks in the state. And that's back before there was any federal government or uh, um, insurance on, on bank deposits. So when those 870, 900 banks went under, if you didn't get your money out before the bank closed, you lost it. So Iowans lost about $200 million in 1920s uh, era uh, uh, money, uh, which works out to be about $3 billion today. So the collapse of the banking system, the collapse of farm prices thanks to the Depression and thanks to overproduction, as well as the fact that Iowans had the highest, largest, uh, the, the highest uh, mortgage debt in the United States. They had gone deep into debt in the 1910s during World War I to buy land and to produce when prices were high. So high mortgage, a, a depressed farm prices, and a banking system which has virtually collapsed and sucked away a couple hundred million dollars. So all those things leave the state in very dire straits come the early 1930s. And Iowa suffered for years and years and years 
before the rest of the country is really hit with the Great Depression. Those dollars that were poured into the state by the New Deal, this is another period that shaped the Iowa that we know today in such incredibly profound ways because um, we had the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was designed to save family farms in Iowa. And of course, we had the Civilian Conservation Corps. All of us have interacted with things built by the Civilian Conservation Corps in Iowa. Our state parks are were entirely really shaped by the Civilian Conservation Corps. But I'm also struck by how you write about it, thinking about the men who worked for the Civilian Conservation Corps in Iowa. Again, this was a much more diverse group of men than I think many of us have been led to believe. Yes, the CCC, the most famous New Deal program, uh, existed. There were about 40 camps in Iowa throughout the 1930s. Thousands of men uh, were worked at those camps. There was a, the CCC had an Indian division, and they had a camp over by Tama. So they were able to help uh, employ Meskwaki men. And the Meskwaki had, uh, before the Depression, uh, often earned money working uh, away from where they lived. And uh, that work had dried up. So the CCC or other New Deal programs helps to employ them and keep the community uh, uh, afloat. There also um, are um, um, uh, uh, other members of other groups. There is um, Latino men who worked for the CCC. One story in the book is of Sebastian Alvarez, who who is an immigrant um from Mexico, and he works on the CCC when he doesn't have other work, uh, and it helps to make sure his family survives the Great Depression. Uh, also, there are um, African-American men who worked um, in uh, Iowa camps. Um, not They weren't segregated camps like in Minnesota or other places, but they lived in segregated buildings in the CC camps. And the CCC employed people uh, if you were, um, usually it was, well, always was men, 18 to 25 young men doing conservation work. But when they weren't working, they had the chance to go to the high school. Uh, most teachers in Boone volunteered their services. Uh, and so CCC men in the evenings could go get training in English and math or mechanics. Uh, they learned how to read. The, the CCC provided tremendous educational opportunities as well as helping families stay afloat during the Great Depression. And we haven't even talked about the uh, WPA, the Works Progress Administration, which there are just so many incredible works of art and pieces of our culture that Mm -hmm. were really preserved by the WPA during that time. But we only have a few minutes left, Jeff, and there are so many more things that, that I wish that we could talk about today. Your history does bring us up to the present day. You even write about Iowa in the 20th century. I'm curious about why you decided to include such recent history, such recent history as the derecho and and the pandemic history that in some ways we're still writing. Well, you're completely right. And uh, some of my fellow historians would not have written a book that comes as close uh, to the modern day uh, as I did. Um, but I thought it was important to get us as close to today as possible to provide as 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 comprehensive of a story as possible.
this book is really a, it's a gift to students of history in Iowa. It's a gift to people who who really want to understand Iowa history. It also invites, I feel, a lot of questions, a, a lot of further exploration. Are you hoping that this book will inspire other historians to look deeper into some of the subjects that you write about? I, I, I would hope so. I, Iowa is neglected terrain for historians. Um, many people in my profession don't see Iowa as terribly representative of the United States. Uh, it is it is not terribly racial, racially diverse. It doesn't have big cities. It is in the middle of a giant country, and we only really get attention when the 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 caucus season is here, or when something bad happens, like a derecho or a flood, or a drought. Uh, so I I would I would love it if this book got more attention. Uh, and that the state that I study, the state that I, I live in, and, and the state that I love would get, get more attention uh, from my profession. Jeff, thank you so much for your book, and thank you for talking with me. Thanks for having me on. Jeff Bremer is an associate professor of history at Iowa State University. He has published A New History of Iowa, and he will be at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines tomorrow evening at 6.30. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Danny Gear, Caitlin Troutman, and Samantha McIntosh. We had production assistance with this program from Sean McLean. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.